Hello and welcome to the Living Well Latrobe podcast. My name's Matt Cummins, and on the podcast today, I'll be speaking to three incredible women to celebrate International Women's Day. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Briakalung people of the Gunai Kurnai Nation, traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast today. International Women's Day is a time to reflect and celebrate the great work done by women in our community, but also acknowledge and commit to the work yet to be done and embrace equity. Embrace equity is this year's international theme. Equity isn't just a nice to have, it's a must have. A focus on gender equity needs to be part of every society's DNA. And it's critical to understand the difference between equity and equality. The words equity and equality are often used interchangeably, yet despite these similarities, equity and equality are inherently different concepts. And the International Women's Day 2023 Embrace Equity campaign theme seeks to forge worldwide conversation about this important issue and its impact. So, what's the difference between equity and equality, and why is it important to understand and acknowledge this? Well, let's start with a basic definition of each word. Equality means individual or group of people is given the same resources or opportunities. Equity recognises that each person has different circumstances and allocates the exact resources and opportunities needed to reach an equal outcome. Equity can be defined as giving everyone what they need to be successful. In other words, it's not giving everyone the exact same thing. If we give everyone the exact same thing, expecting that will make people equal assumes that everyone started out in the same place. And this can be vastly inaccurate because everyone isn't the same. The concept of fairness can get tricky as it's often assumed that being fair means everybody gets the same thing. Often, this has been taught when we were growing up, but fairness really only works when we're all the same to start out with. Equality focuses on providing all genders with equal opportunities, such as a woman's right to vote. Yet women often require more than a level playing field. They need to belong in a global culture that actively promotes and supports them in all aspects of their life, from education to the workplace to health. Gender is intersectional, and women as a group are truly diverse. Policies that benefit white women, for example, may not benefit women of colour due to historical or current inequalities. A shift from gender equality to the process of gender equity is required for meaningful progress. So, make it your mission to educate friends, family, colleagues and the community on the need for equity – And let's get into our very special podcast, The Living Well Latrobe Podcast. Our first guest on the podcast today, Councillor Kelly O'Callaghan. We've got so many things as part of your bio to discuss, but I will summarise just super briefly. First elected to the Latrobe City Council in 2008, currently serving your third term as Mayor, a very well-respected and authentic community leader with a passion for health, wellbeing, community-led development and more. 
What you're most respected for, though, would be you get straight to the heart of real and practical ways that individuals, organisations and communities can overcome challenges. It's where I believe that you shine in terms of your leadership roles. You develop robust governance and engaging approaches whilst embedding strength-led co-design into planning, service delivery, improvement and innovation programs. And I need to add, you're the chair of One Gippsland current Deputy Chair of Regional Cities and Member of Victoria, Local Government Mayoral Advisory Panel. Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hey, Matt. Lovely to see you. Great to see you too. I I feel a little bit terrible in that I can't list all of your achievements here because uh, you are someone, and you know this, we've spoken plenty of times before, that I really admire for your connection to community. And it's great to have you here talking to us today. Thank you so much, Matt. It's always an absolute pleasure to spend time with you because I know that you understand the importance of community's contribution and uh, the role we all play in terms of the work we do in our local community. Absolutely. So thanks for being part of us. Well, this particular podcast obviously is focusing on uh, women, leadership and uh, a whole lot of issues, so many, and it's a real pleasure to be involved with it. I want to jump straight into some questions with you, though, particularly as it references Latrobe City Council, who are producing this podcast for us today. The City Council takes women's leadership very, very seriously, which is wonderful to see. What do you say to women looking to follow your example, following your footsteps? Because as we said, you've achieved quite a lot as a very strong leader. I think one of the things that is important for women to focus on, if it, if they really do want to take on these kinds of roles within community, is don't get too focused on the absolute pathway to participating in whether it's councils or other forms of political leadership. And that's because there is no one pathway to this. It's more about your capacity to engage with community, to understand the subtleties of lived experience of the broader community and that the importance of understanding diversity of creating safe spaces and holding places for community to be able to engage together is probably a lot more important than any sort of formal recognition of experience. The other element too, which can be a real challenge when people are watching, whether it be local government or other levels of politics from the outside, is it can look like it's extremely complicated, but there's significant systems and infrastructure and wonderful teams of people that are there to support you in the work that you do. So as long as you bring a significant level of curiosity, a willingness to learn about not just the systems of government, but also how you can be the most effective in terms of your leadership style and the work that you want to do, then you're probably best informed around doing the work. I sometimes think that women feel they need to be overwhelmingly prepared to come in and participate in any range of functions, whether it's being a councillor, whether they aspire to be the mayor. I know I was certainly feeling that way when I was working in the health system and when I was the chair of a hospital board. I literally felt day one like I had no idea what I was doing and there's no way I could have been prepared for that. Once I got my head around the idea that I'm there because of the skills I do bring and the attributes I have... And attributes are probably more important than that credentialing that you may carry with you. And that is that willingness to be curious, to be informed by other people, to have the capacity to listen, and also 
to know that not everyone is going to be seeing these things from the same perspective that you have because your lived experience is very different. Um, the other element, particularly in the role that I undertake, is you don't need to have the answers for everything. Um, I get to talk a lot to communities and to wonderful people like yourself, Matt, uh, but there's a lot of preparation that goes on behind the scenes. There's a lot of people that bring that, you know, specific information together so that I can speak to it in an informed way. But I certainly didn't walk into the council chamber uh, day one with any really clear understanding of what the systems were, how the processes worked, or what the level of influence was going to be for me. And I think if I even look around the room at our council chamber at the moment, each of those councillors affects the way that we make decisions, the way we engage in community and the strategies that we have in a very different way. Part of it's their personal style, part of it's their history and their lived experience. Um, So I'm always reluctant to give someone a very specific direction on how to get there but what it is they need to bring and that's your authentic self, your capacity to be curious and your willingness to listen and learn. Uh, One of the great things I love to do whether it's here or whether it's in the health sector is to actually just sit in the back of the room and listen But the other thing I will always do is defer to those who are the experts. The subject matter experts are the people who will get you by. Um, And I've drawn some criticism from time to time that I'm not immediately available. Um, Part of that is because I do a significant level of work, strategically focused activity, because that's that high level governance work that I feel I do well. Uh, But we have such a depth of experience and knowledge and other women and men within our organisation who know their stuff so well. And you've got to know when to defer to them and to let them build their strengths and their skills. So I also take this leadership um, consideration into account. If I'm looking for other leaders, and often what I would describe as non-traditional leaders, to either look toward what they can assist me with in the work I do or the work we do more broadly in council, is does that person have a capacity to find a pathway for others to participate in the work that we're sharing in. Because it is shared work, you know. People like me will come and go, but it's about creating those pathways to participation. Do you think in part of what you're saying there, uh, I imagine the pressure on anyone to stand up and deliver for themselves and their community must be a barrier to some success. But I I think if I'm hearing you correctly, we can still aspire to things, bring our own lived experiences and be successful. Do you think particularly for women that extra level of pressure is what might be holding some of them back from from aspiring to help our community in other ways? And some of that is very gendered. It's the nature of feeling like you need to be acceptable in a particular way or present yourself in a particular way. Um, it's how you're participation, whether it be in a conversation, whether it be in a group discussion or whether you're leading a room of people may be perceived by the group. And I do think women generally come to a room trying to understand how that room will receive them rather than how they will be able to participate in what's happening. I certainly did that quite a bit. I still do it now from time to time. If I'm not having a great day or I'm doubtful about what it is I'm doing, the content I'm delivering, I may get a little bit worried about how that's being received in the room. That can be a really big barrier to overcome um, because it's that level of I need to get this right or someone will criticise me for 
Um, and I know you and I have shared in a range of wonderful activities and community yeah. celebrations together. I remember one where we were at together <laughs> and I happened to turn up in exactly the same outfit I'd worn the year before, <laughs> which is not uncommon for me because I'm yeah. a creature of habit and I don't get out much. No. Um, <laughs> so I did. And I didn't think much of it until I got in the room and someone very gently pointed out, I said, it's great. I'm so glad that you repurpose your wardrobe. Having not given it any consideration, I just laughed it off. But then subsequent to the event, someone had sent me a photo to point out how disappointed they were in me that I hadn't no. made the effort and that I had worn the same thing. And I thought that's really interesting. Two completely different perspectives. The reality wow. is, and I think you were there for one of my speeches, yep. and it was a fairly difficult one for me to deliver. It was not long after I'd had um, my breast cancer surgery. Mm. I think it was days out from yep. surgery and you were very supportive and encouraging. Thank yeah, you so I, much. If I remember correctly, the day you're speaking, you were, well, let's describe it as tired. That's, fragile. Yes. Fragile. Yes. Vulnerable. Uh, yeah, yeah. Probably shouldn't have been there. Let's be everything, honest. Everything, to yes. be honest, that someone who's going through that experience should have been at that Absolutely. point. Absolutely. you turned up. And felt the pressure to turn yeah. up. And I think that's the other thing is when, and, and reflecting on that now, quite clearly, I shouldn't have been in that room. And But there, wouldn't have, there would not have been someone else necessarily to stand in for you if you hadn't been there. Yeah, so it was that pressure to be able to be there. But the other thing is once I did get there, and this then gave over to the vulnerability, and for those listening in on this, Matt was on stage with me. So he got to introduce me, he got to be there as my support person, and I literally thought I can take on the world, I can do this. Um, I was a few days post-op and feeling all of the vulnerabilities around everything around my diagnosis and everything else that was going on. So very acutely aware of my physicality, but also probably my lack of emotional and mental health wow. wellness at that point in time as well, but felt this pressure to turn up there and be that leader, mm. be that person, present in a way, make it look flawless, got up there and then spotted some of the surgical team in the audience. Yeah. And it was just this moment of being acutely aware of I've just seen these people hold space for me at my most vulnerable in a hospital mm. and now I'm here, funnily enough, in a <laughs> hospital event speaking as a leader of a particular activity and it just hit me like a brick while I was standing on stage. And it all came out. But by the time I went to walk off stage, one, I didn't even know where I was. I'd completely lost the context. And, you know, and the speech was fine yeah. and it held the room. It was probably a little confronting because I think the audience weren't necessarily aware of, hang on, where's this going? Yeah. But there was a moment where in the darkness, because we were literally on a stage, it was fairly narrow, mm. a particular venue in Terrelgan, and you reached your hand out to me to help guide me off that yes. stage. Yeah. And that was more than just helping me physically get off the stage because no one wants me falling off a stage, but it was also my anchor to the next part of this process, which was me basically walking off that stage and bursting into tears because it was all too much. So you were that bridge yeah. between something so overwhelmingly confronting for me mm. but holding a very safe space for me to be able to navigate my way out of it and then go and deal with what I needed to to be able to be okay about what just happened. But there was that pressure. It was that real nexus between you must turn up and present and be the perfect woman and person and leader. And you needed to deliver a speech needed that Needed to night. do it. Needed to do it. But physically being probably somewhat challenged yeah. by the environment, feeling very wobbly emotionally and knowing that I'd just literally given over all of my experience and the emotion and everything to a whole room of people who held me safely. And then there was that bridge. 
And I think for me that's about understanding that you do need to be, as a woman who is leading, able to say, I can't, and I can do that now, but I couldn't do that then. So we're talking nine years ago. Being able to, whether it's two minutes out, three days out, five years out, say, I just can't do this for you. I can't be there. I can't give it all over to you. And it doesn't diminish who you are as a leader. Absolutely not. Because you will get into those rooms, and I'm very fortunate that I'm usually in spaces where they're held safely for me, but not every woman has that experience. So if there's a a learning in that, it would be that you can still give fully of yourself. You don't need to give everything over, but you can also put limits around what it is that you can and can't do, and it doesn't diminish who you are as a leader or the contribution you can make. Um, So I'm always grateful to you. For your kindness and your gratitude. I did not know that. that. Yeah, and look, it's really funny because I see people from that night and a few others that I've done because I've had my collisions with the health system from time to time um, where I do go back to them, but I often find it can take me years to revert back and have that conversation. And I think because it's hard. Mm. It's hard to look back on what it is that you do and how you engage in leadership as a woman and acknowledge that I thought literally that I had it all covered, Mm. but it was just so fragile and at any point anything could have gone wrong or become really unclear or unsafe. Mm. And that's the pressure of having to be that perfect person and it just doesn't exist. It's just not real. And it, it and I was about to say, it, that's a construct, isn't it, of of the pressure that women that are as aspirational are, are, I think, from what I'm understanding, putting on themselves more often than the people around them. Is that is that fair? Absolutely. And I have moments where I will be terribly worried and, you know, whether it's media when you're going to do it or turning up to an event or presenting something And I've got to the point now where I will literally say to whoever is with me, and there usually is because the nature of these events is they're a decent size, there's lots going on, there's just no way it can all stay in my head. Mm. Um, And I'm not great with sequencing things. I can't keep things in a particular order. I'm completely time blind, as Kate is acutely (laughs) aware. Kate, who's here with us. Um, There's some limitations to some of my capacity. I'm aware of that now. But the expectation that you will do it all, that you will have it covered. And I've had that as a parent um, and I know we've both had that wonderful, joyous experience of having Mm -hmm. um, beautiful young women and some younger than others uh, in our lives as well, mine off at uni and yours working their way through um, their wonderful education experience too. But you feel this overwhelming sense of responsibility to do everything for them and show them that you can do everything. But the reality is... The downside of that is you can't give to yourself the space that you need to actually do well. Mm. Um, I, but I've been very fortunate and I think it's, it is important to speak to privilege because I'm acutely aware of the privilege I have. And part of that is who I am, who I'm known by, um, what my educational background was coming from a very stable family, but also understanding that as a woman within this community who is seen to be acceptable, in terms of how I present, what I say, my cultural background, the whole thing, that I don't have some of the challenges that others will find is a challenge for them. So even in a position of privilege, there's a difficulty of perception. Yeah. Um, I will still struggle if I have to walk out and do a media thing to just walk out without the makeup on. Okay. Because there is that sense of I just need to show people I made an effort. Yeah. Um, 
yet I'm pretty sure someone watching it's not going to bother that much. Um, but, you know, you don't know. You, you just always have that doubt of do I need to present in a particular way? Do I need to make sure that how I'm received is, and I hate this language, but it's the reality of how I think sometimes, is it palatable to the audience? But I'm acutely aware that I've got the privilege to be able to ask myself that question. I want to move on because we are limited to time. We've got some other guests, but I do need to ask. I want to hear, if you can, some stories of achievement or success that you're familiar with uh, in your time as councillor and also as mayor as well. What can you what can you bring to us? I think some of the work we do, and it's probably I often find, particularly when I'm speaking in community, we do tend to talk about those big achievements, the things that are really quite obvious or you know, branded in a significant way um, or our celebrations on a large scale. I think for me, though, the achievements that we've made in terms of pathways to participation, particularly for women in relation to ageing, I think that's been a, a really interesting body of work. Um, we have a positive ageing uh, engagement group who come together. It is fundamentally informed by women's voices. That just happens to be the level of interest that we had from it. That's not to exclude men's voices. That just happens to be people who are interested. Um, but they bring a very different perspective around what it means for them to be living within a community from an ageing perspective, but also from a perspective I guess at that perspective around aspiration, what does it mean? What do they want their ageing experience to be? And that's the whole challenge of ageing in place and what does that look like? So I think that's really important. The other side of it that I think is really a focus for council as well is disability and accessibility-related elements for, for women. And that is because that pathway to be able to participate for women can be challenged already, but then coupled together with a disability-informed lived experience can be even more challenging. So we're also very fortunate to have a number of women who do participate in our disability and accessibility engagement group who inform that conversation, challenge our thinking. But I think one of the good things we do in that work and also in terms of our culturally and linguistically diverse communities and our committees where we work there is we hold a safe space. And I think there is a really important role for council to be an enabler of. Uh, we have seen that in a number of our events and our activities and whether they are focused on specific activities for women, more broadly available throughout the community, um, or don't have a particular gender focus. Our holding space has enabled us to see more women participating. I just think that participation more broadly then lends itself to women being able to find their voice and their confidence, but also probably finding other women who can support them in the work that they do. So I do try to reach out in any of those activities to find what I often describe as my succession plan. Um, but women within the group of any level of experience, age, ability um, or diverse culture and lived experience to understand why they're participating, to understand what their barriers were to participation and to get really clear, not just for myself but for the broader team that I work with, what is it that we can do to ensure that when they want to participate in future it's easier? And for someone who may have their similar experience, how do we ensure that in future it's easier for them? You and I could talk for ages. We will. We're just going to keep going. We just won't we, record all Well, of yeah. I, I think uh, there are so many... <laughs> brilliant stories that you could 
share with the community. And I think, again, we spoke of themes of inspiration uh, before, and I, I, I think that could be really handy for the community, not just here in our little part of the world, but right across Australia as well. Um, and sincerely, thank you for being a part of the podcast today because it is great to hear some of these stories about your lived experience and, and what uh, young women now can aspire to and how they can break down some of the uh, glass ceilings as well. So thank you. Love it to talk to you, Matt. It's the Living Well Latrobe podcast, and I'm really pleased to be able to speak to Dr. Doris Payton. Doris has a fantastic resume and body of work, a PhD in philosophy amongst those from RMIT University, Master of Education in Aboriginal Education, and many more qualifications. Doris speaks Indigenous languages uh, across Gippsland and has been teaching language in context within the community to children and adults for over 20 years. A wife, mother, grandmother whose family lives and works in Gippsland. The resume is far more detailed than that, I can't possibly do it justice here on a podcast. But Dr. Doris Payton, welcome to the Living Well Latrobe podcast. Thanks, Matt. Nice to talk to you. Well, let's get straight into questions. I understand and I mentioned ever so briefly in the introduction that a significant proportion of your career and your life has been dedicated to the revival and reclamation of Aboriginal languages, including the languages of the Gunai Kurnai people and community and others as well. I want to talk about how important that is to women across Gippsland. Can you tell us about your role in teaching people? I grew up in an Aboriginal language-speaking family. Um, my mother spoke her own language and still speaks her own language, and as did my grandmother and auntie. So uh, our family were fortunate in that language was kept in the family and we were able to speak some of, not all of, um, my mother's language. So I grew up knowing that language was important culturally and that the work I needed to do as an educator moved me into the revival and reclamation of language for the Kurnai language. It had mostly been uh, gone from the community and very very little the language was spoken uh, across the community. Much of the language for many words uh, are spoken across the community, but the language is is recorded in an oral context and also recorded um, by linguists and by surveyors, by historians, by many people and on the record and in the archives. But I basically became involved with the reviving and reclamation of the local language because of my interest culturally in language and my interest in, as an educator, in ensuring that the language of the community was in a process of revival and in a process of reclamation for the community. And the reason, the other reason that I looked at what, what I wanted to do in language was that in culturally, language 
strengthens our identity. Um, language enables the community to draw on language to bring back cultural knowledge and to share stories and to have connection to country through language. So what we found um, as an educator that there weren't many resources available for the community and there weren't many speakers of language, only a few words we've lost that already. So we really wanted to work around retrieving the language from the outcome, uh, then working with it to work out the system of the language, you know, the sound of the language and how it was spelled. And we did some work early with elders that were around at the time who spoke some language and said we want to basically see it installed because they hadn't really grown up with a lot of it. So language was um, going to be important to teach elders, the community and children. They particularly wanted to focus on children in the community because then they would grow up with the languages. I had that opportunity to do as a child myself and other members of the family. So for me, it was about retrieving the language and and then providing it in a format that the community could use. And we worked on developing uh, CD uh, in the early stages. Uh, we worked on creating teaching resources. We mostly focused on a, an oral program rather than using a dictionary. A dictionaries are important um, for gathering and um, having the written language in one place, but oral language is what the elders would ask to do. Ask to do. And then I say after I worked with um, uh, an, another teacher, uh, Aboriginal woman in the community, um, to work on the language. And we were supported really well by those elders for a very long time. So I think language and for women and the community, it gives well, it gives that sense of belonging to a place, um, of learning those stories that belong to that place, and it, it like I said, strengthens the identity of people. And people are, you know, older people, younger people, men and women in the community. But with a focus on women, uh, we learn a lot about bush food, bush medicine. Uh, food that was gathered, food that was cooked, food that was used, the plants and resources that were used for making things like baskets and, you know, creating um, ornamentation to, to wear. So it was knowledge about country and knowledge about uh, food and and the country and where things grew and how they grew and when was the right season to pick them, um, where they were prolific on the country and where they are prolific now on the country. So language is really important to um, bringing that culture in the community. You, you touched on a point there a little earlier about protecting the communities and we know through adversity and disadvantage such as being moved to missions like Lake Tyres. Um, I'm intrigued to know 
How in the historical process have Gunai Kurnai women particularly played a role in protecting their community? You spoke just a moment ago about protecting parts of the language and then communicating that through other generations, but how have the Gunai Kurnai women protected their community? I, again, come from a very strong line of women. Um, it's, it's in the blood, as my dad was saying. But uh, the women in our community, um, and again, to quote my dad, you know, they're the rocks of the communities and, you know, the foundation to, to supporting uh, the Aboriginal communities that they live in across Gippsland and within their own families, uh, within organisations and within the services that uh, women are involved in in the community. So many of, uh, as a result of, you know, the policy, um, the protection policy, the early days of removing children, the assimilation policy, a lot of Aboriginal people lived on the fringes of society with no support and, you know, faced the, um, the barriers of not, not having access to health and housing and those things that are important to, to having well-being and to having the community look, look after itself um, in, in health and for their own well-being. So many of those women were instrumental when people lived on the fringes in starting up uh, the housing services, uh, the health services across Gippsland, and there are five health services across Gippsland, meeting the needs of Aboriginal communities. So many of those older women, and, you know, I count my mother as one of them, and she's in her late 80s now, but there are other women who have passed, and uh, other women like Nessie um, Scooter, Marion Solomon, and I've probably just named a couple, but there were many of them who were strong advocates for, you know, supporting families and women through health. And they they established what is now the health services um, across Gippsland. We're speaking today to Dr Doris Payton, also known as Dr Auntie Doris, on our Living Well Latrobe podcast. Uh, I, I just I wanted to go back just a little bit on that point as well. You've spoken about how the Gunai Kurnai, Kurnai community continues to invest in young people. And to the theme of some of our podcasts today, I'd just like to ask about some of the work you've been involved in that moves towards gender equality. Would you have a story or an example of something to share with us on the podcast? I have um, such strong respect for the next generations of women, um, including the women in my age group in the community and the next generations now, for the work they continue to do for the community. And many of the the younger generation women or next generation women, they are the leaders in in the health services. They are CEOs in organisations. Um, they take a leading role in education in the community. They work um, in other agencies to support family and children in school. Um, and they also provide support in enabling 
um, younger people in the community and other and others to take up um, employment opportunities and to provide support um, in, in many of the major you know, institutions of, of La Trobe Valley, um, things like uh, La Trobe Regional Hospital and the Smith family and La Trobe, um, La Trobe um, Community Health and other areas. So I have a strong admiration for the next generation who have picked up um, the work that needs to be done for community. And I guess, you know, supporting that um, from someone um, like me in, uh, in some of the work, through the work I've done through the community and working in education and across the community and with doing my bit through cross-cultural training and um, supporting and mentoring younger generation women in the community, um, you know, that recognising that the women in the community take um, leading roles um, that will um, provide the community with support that was not given to their grandmothers, for example, in the wider community. Dr. Payton, thank you very much for joining us on the International Women's Day Living Well Latrobe podcast. We thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Matt. It's our Living Well Latrobe podcast on International Women's Day, talking to a range of different speakers. And our next guest today is a transformative public sector and community leader, creating environments that foster access, equity, sustainability and participation. And she's been doing it for over 30 years. Kerry is a freelance consultant, board director and volunteer, founding member of Women in Gippsland and also co-founder and now project lead for the Put Her Name On It campaign, which... We will speak about in just a minute. And co-founder of the Advertising Inequality Project. So please make welcome to the podcast, Kerry Wilson. How are you? Hey, how are you? I'm great. Very well indeed. We've got lots to get through with you because I am really intrigued. There's, I've done a little bit of research myself and I'm sure you've seen some wonderful work being done. But let's start at the very beginning for those that are unsure. Tell us about the Put Her Name On It campaign. Okie doke. Well, Put a Name on It is a groundbreaking initiative and it's challenging the place naming and commemoration system and driving change to ensure women and gender diverse people and their stories are central, visible and plentiful in our public places. We all like to call it uh, commemorative justice and when I say public places, I mean streets and roads and buildings, parks, reserves, statues, monuments, public art, town names, ward names. So it's places we like to visit and consume every Every day. The campaign started right here in Gippsland three years ago by women in Gippsland and it's gone from strength to strength. And I, you might say, well, what? Go for it. Well, sorry to interrupt. I, I was about to say, so there, the, the scope of this project then is obviously huge, really, isn't it? It is. And it's, and it's worldwide because it's a global problem. So then knowing that th- there would be a- an enormous body of work to represent, tell us about the project. What, uh, what have you achieved so far? So we, well, it's, we're, we're pretty happy with the progress to date, really. Um, in fact, 
you know, we wanted to look at changing the way that um, public places were named and people were commemorated in them. And systemic change takes, you know, usually a long period of time, but we're well on the way. Um, I, I think first and foremost, um, which was really exciting, was that we uh, went from being a volunteer group to being uh, achieving some funding through Geographic Names Victoria and Gender, Gender Equity Victoria became the author. So that was, I guess, the first really important part. Um, but secondary to that is what we aim to do up front was to change the naming rules in Victoria. And that's what our original campaign was set to do. And it's done that. Those naming rules that guide the way that places like the Trobe City as a naming authority name places have been changed to include gender equity and um, First Nations language as principles, which means that no longer is it just a very generic rule. They're very specific about what they want to see. They're acknowledging that there's a problem that needs to be addressed. So those two really, really important initiatives. But one of the things that we also asked all the local government areas to do, so we had like a state campaign, change the rules, and we had a local campaign around making the difference. And Bath Coast Council endorsed the five points that we asked people to do, asked local governments to do. And that really uh, gave us confidence that we we're on the right track and that it also gave us much needed data so because there wasn't much data around we everyone knew it was a problem but there wasn't a lot to actually um to to support that so we we were able to get back coast data that said that i think about 30 percent of places and roads and streets and that were named after women um which which is probably quite high because the rest of what we know is probably more around 10 percent or so and when it comes to statues it's like one to two percent so the campaign um, has been going from strength to strength and uh, we have a reference group set up now with a lot of movers and shakers. We call them commemorative justice warriors. <laughs> um, we've got research underway with, with the 79 councils across Victoria to actually try and understand how many places are actually named after women and gender diverse people. And we've got about 80% response rate back. So we'll have some really great data to share around Victoria soon. And we've also, on the 21st of March, we will launch what's called the Finding Her Commemorative Tour, which will make visible the things that are already commemorating women uh, around Victoria. And there's about 100 women that we featured on that tour and about uh, 40 sites. So that's extremely exciting. And that's just going to help, you know, really elevate the problem and the solutions as well and hopefully get more people involved. Whenever someone fights or campaigns for change, inevitably it usually takes a long time. You've mm. only, I suppose, done this in the last couple of years. Do you feel everything's happening rapidly? Are you getting good support across uh, the wider community? Yes, amazing. That's what we're so you know excited about is that um, you know, I talk with people every day that are just so excited about this. I think it's because it's such a positive, there's really no downside to this. You know, telling stories of women and gender diverse people that have not been told and shared before and have little visibility, it, it, it's, it's just... It's a really humbling, humbling experience listening to the stories, but it's also incredibly um, 
empowering being able to be part of a movement that shares those stories and shines a light on them. So, yeah, we've got, you know, last a few weeks ago, just before Christmas, Darabin City Council um, put in, a, you know, put out a draft policy and they've actually set quotas for place naming. So 75% of all of their new place naming um, that's named after a person will be of women um, and, and diverse in, with, with a real light, shining a light on diversity as well. City of Melbourne have also announced a new policy and at least three new statues. City of Bendigo are doing a women's tour themselves. Uh, the Borbore Shire are now calling on community members to submit the stories of women so that they've got this bank of women that they can um, name things after in the future. You know, new de developers are looking at how they can put more women's names on streets and roads in their new developments. So every day we're just getting news and, in, you know, enlightening stories about what people are going to be doing in this space. We're speaking to Kerry Wilson on our Living Well La Trobe podcast. Kerry, uh, you, you've led me down a path now. I'd love to hear, if you've got some, a story about local women because what I'm hearing from you is so much positive response. Now I want to hear a story. Give us an example if you can. Well, just before I spoke, you've listened to, you know, Kelly and Doris, and um, I'm sure you've drilled into their stories as well. And, yes. you know, once again, two incredible local women. But I'm going to tell you the story about Jean Galbraith. Um, the State Library of Victoria say that Jean is one of the eight Australian women that you should know. And she lived her entire life in tyres. And I question how many people know Jean's story. Um, she's got a reserve, the Jean Galbraith reserve is in tyres and that was donated by her family back in um, you know 1930s or something for the community to enjoy but Jean was a botanist an author a conservationist and philanthropist um, and you know just an incredible woman and so this reserve has been either wildlife sanctuary um, it was the first privately donated reserve in the state um, and you know she's had a book written after over uh, about her and she you know, she just did some incredible things. And I just, you know, I think everybody should know Jean's name and, um, you know, what she did. So a couple of her, you know, books, they're still, they're still well utilised and she wrote them like back in, you know, like the 30s and 40s and things like that. So incredible local woman. There's a site dedicated to her. She will feature on the Finding Her map and we'd love more people to, you know, go and visit that site and learn more about her. I want to get the map now because I will confess I had no idea. So even speaking to you today has offered me better education and, and it probably has demonstrated just in one example why I put her name on it is such an important campaign. So that being said, what more could be done in your opinion to commemorate women in our community? And, and then a second part to that, what can the community do to support women? So, yeah, so much more obviously can be done. Um, you know, our, we have a five-point um, plan, I guess, of what we want particularly local governments to do as naming authorities. And number one is to audit, to find out what they've got, you know, who, who are the places, streets, roads, all that, you know, uh, named after. Um, and then you have the stories as well and you have your base case. Acknowledge that there's a gap. We know that there's a gap. Amend any policy or procedures that you have around that then start to accumulate that list of important names so that you can start adding adding to the naming pool and, and making sure there's more things named after women. But what we really ask is that 
it, it, I've worked in local government for many years and know that the process is quite a reactive process. Um, start to look at leading this process. Take it on as very planned and organised, and that's how you get the change that we want to see. But you know, for you know, in lo local councils, they can just look around the walls of their facilities that they own or run or their council chambers and see just the imbalance of images, even that will be looking down at them. And then for community members. Um, check out the Finding Her tool when it's launched on the 21st of March um, and get to know, you know, tour. You can tour in person. There'll be QR codes on all the sites or you can um, tour just digitally with the, with the um, it's a, just a mobile app, not an application, just a, a web app. Um, also, just don't default to men. It's a really easy because men's stories have been well-developed throughout our history and the women's just haven't been. So challenge that narrative and look for those stories. Look within your own family circles and dig a little deeper. Uh, Karen Collins did that about her great-great-grandmother, Minnie Eason, um, who's buried at Rosedale. But she dug into that and, and challenged what they'd been told about her and the Story, the book into the out of the darkness is incredible and well worth looking at. But yeah, I really encourage people to look into their own family and friends circle and see what those stories are. If you're historic associations, start looking at um, researching women's histories because a lot of them are oral. They've not been documented. So they have to be, um, you really need to drill down and do a lot of research and a lot of discussions with people to be able to formulate those stories. As I said to developers, you know, they can, they've got a great um, capacity to make change quickly in new developments with all of the parts and streets and road names that they can do. And artists, you know, really look at your craft to develop or propose a project that commemorates the woman in public place. So we just encourage people to be interested and, you know, that interest matters and that'll just, and that enthusiasm will just create even more enthusiasm and that's what we want. Kerry Wilson joining us on our Living Well La Trobe podcast. Kerry, uh, the Put Her Name On It campaign, where can we go online to find more information? Uh, Instagram, websites, wh where do we go next? Yes, we have an Instagram page, so just put her name on it so you can follow that. There's a little bit more information on the Gender, Gender Equity Victoria website um, and soon the Finding Her tour will be online and you'll be able to find that as well. Fantastic. But if Ker anyone's got any great ideas, they can contact me. That is brilliant. And again, we can find you online? Absolutely. Brilliant. Kerry, thank you very much for joining us on our Living Well La Trobe podcast. Thanks so much. Well, there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed this very special podcast, our Living Well La Trobe podcast, celebrating International Women's Day. Remember, it comes from you to embrace equity and achieve equality. I'd like to reach out and thank our guests for appearing on the podcast today, Kelly O'Callaghan, Auntie Doris and Kerry Wilson for giving so generously of their time and sharing their very personal stories with us as part of our International Women's Day podcast. This has been produced by La Trobe City Council and Kate Cumming. I'm Matt Cummins. Give us a like and we hope to bring you more in the Living Well La Trobe series soon.